sounds like we have Canada to blame for the high haze that's keeping the sun a little bit dimmer in our skies. A lot of smoke, Lisa says, that's coming in over our atmosphere. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And we're going to start with Layla. Is there even one Republican elected leader in Ohio who will stand up to the hypocrisy going on with issue one, the special August election aimed at reducing democracy in Ohio? Attorney General Dave Yost, who has proven himself to be the most prickly stickler imaginable when it comes to ballot language being precise, is defending the August ballot while admitting it is seriously flawed. Layla, did he do that with a straight face? Yes, he did. You know, while he acknowledges that there are problems with the ballot language, he says it doesn't really matter. (laughs) One person, one vote, who's the group that is opposing issue one, is asking the Supreme Court to reject the ballot language and force it to be rewritten. And their main arguments are that, number one, that the ballot summary does not describe the status quo for amendments, including failing to tell voters point blank that the proposed new 60 percent approval threshold is higher than the current 50 percent. Which to me, it's funny that avoiding that plays right into the proponent's new campaign strategy of downplaying the supermajority threshold, doesn't it? Uh, Another argument they're making is that opponents, they say um, they take issue with the fact that the ballot language describes the changes as elevating the standards for proposing amendments. One person, one vote contends that elevate is not a neutral term, and the language should say modify, raise, or increase. And the state officials said, you know, those are all functionally the same. You know, I don't think raise the standards or increase the standards are neutral either, because it's the word standards that's problematic. It suggests that if you don't vote yes, you must have low standards. So (laughs) the phrasing should be modify the requirements, don't you think? Um, And also one person, one vote argues that the ballot summary inaccurately describes how the amendment would require future amendment campaigns to collect the minimum number of voter signatures from all 88 Ohio counties compared to the current 44 counties to qualify for the ballot. Yost's office concedes that there is a technical difference between what the ballot language says, which is at least 5% of eligible voters in each county, and what the amendment actually would require, which is at least 5% of the ballots cast in each county during the most recent election for governor. That is a huge difference. But state officials are saying that's not a material defect. Voters (laughs) can just hunt down the language of the amendment on their own if they want to figure out what it will actually do. And if they want to know what the current voter approval threshold is for a constitutional amendment, Yo says they should just look at the context clues because their own ballot would say, you know, requires a majority yes vote for passage right next to issue one. So come on. (laughs) What what makes this absurd is that Dave Yost has regularly rejected the language for ballot questions. He did it just last week because it's not specific. It's not exact. I mean, over and over he's done this. He's come back and said, nope, it doesn't accurately depict it. You got to redo it. For him to go to the Supreme Court and say, yeah, it doesn't actually depict it, but no big deal. Everybody's going to figure it out anyway, is total hypocrisy. So we got Mike DeWine being total hypocrite and pursuing this because he knows he signed a bill to ban August elections. You got all the lawmakers who voted for this total hypocrites because they said nobody votes in August elections. We shouldn't have them. And now Dave Yost has joined the pack 
going into the Supreme Court and saying stuff that he has dead set opposed to in pretty much every previous ballot question. It's it's shocking. It's one thing to go in and put up the lame defense because he's the attorney general. But to make that kind of specious argument, it really does compromise his integrity. I agree. And also, really, that if you want to say that elevating standards, raising standards, if that's splitting hairs, okay, fine. But this question of of whether at least 5% of eligible voters is the same as at least 5% of the ballots cast in the most recent gubernatorial election, that is dramatically different. And he, he cannot say that there's no uh, substantive difference there. That That is, if the court doesn't throw that out, I just, I, I'm done. <laughs> Well, but the court, and but let's face it, the court has proven, the, the, the leaders of that court have proven that it's party over the law, party over the people. The dissents that the current chief justice wrote in the gerrymandering case were preposterous. The, 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 they were defending, violating the, the Ohio Constitution. Pat DeWine did too. So I have no faith they'll do the right thing. If they were doing the right thing, they'd cancel the whole election because it violates Ohio law passed by the legislature, signed by the governor. Mm-hmm. We have outlawed these elections, and yet they put one on the ballot anyway. Sad that Dave Yost is doing such things because I believe he wants to run for higher office, and this seems like it'll compromise his credibility. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the Ohio medical marijuana industry in trouble because of having too much supply and too little demand? Or is this a claim aimed at reducing competition? Lisa, where is the truth? I think it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, Marijuana industry groups uh, say that new and expanded growing space in recent years has resulted in an oversupply of marijuana in the state. Matt Close with the Ohio Medical Cannabis Industry Association says Senate Bill 9, which proposes expansion of growing and processing space, comes as the industry has a lot of extra marijuana and it threatens to destroy the industry and kill 6,000 jobs. Now, the sponsor of Senate Bill 9, Senator Stephen Huffman, the Republican from Dayton, says, I don't believe that. He says business is, you know, the businesses that are behind the Just Like Alcohol ballot initiative to legalize recreational marijuana are against Senate Bill 9 because it would allow new growers. And, you know, the petition that is circulating for this initiated statute, you know, says that they want to keep growers, new growers out of the business for two years after it passes. Now, the state's medical marijuana control program is not concerned either with oversupply. As a matter of fact, they're doubling the number of dispensary licenses and think that that will help with the oversupply issue. So Senate Bill Nine, it does expand cultivation licenses. Um, it increases the patient population by adding autism disorder, opioid use disorder, and other conditions to the approved list. But Close says that's more patients, but it's not enough to offset the oversupply, which has in, uh, in turn reduced you know, prices and the patient population is flattened. So yeah, and I remember the first time they tried to pass marijuana, there was a deal. Everyone was upset because the growers wanted a monopoly. So this sounds like they're trying to do that again. Yeah, we live in a capitalist society. So business competition is generally regarded as healthy and good for the consumer. If you lock competitors out, then it's not good for the consumer. It raises prices and it leaves you fewer reasons to try and be efficient and deliver a good service. This seems very much like 
they're trying to get back to what you discussed, the monopoly. They want to control the whole thing, and then there's no demand. Of course, there is competition, right? Just across the state line, you can buy right. marijuana anywhere you want. So they are, they do have serious competition elsewhere. Uh, we'll have to see if their complaints land any blows. And, and prices have dropped rapidly. I mean, I just wanted to point that out. In 2021, the first quarter of 2021, one pound of flour was $769, and that's the wholesale price. It dropped in the fourth quarter of 2022 to $168, you know, for a pound of flour. So, yeah, that's a big drop. But others have pointed out, even at that wholesale price, that's not what, you know, patients are paying. It's good for the consumer if the price drops, and they should be looking out for the Ohio consumer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The latest story in our continuing daycare series examines what happens when a worker at a child care center calls in sick. Laura, how often does this turn into a crisis for a working parent? It's not a common occurrence, but I wouldn't say it's totally rare either. Thankfully, I never experienced it when my kids were in child care centers for about seven years, but it depends how many backup plans a child care center has and who's calling off that day. And it is a lot harder to hire and keep those workers now than it, it used to be. So 80% of child care providers reported staff shortages in November 2022. And if you don't have the required staffing, if you can't meet the state ratios required, which is one in six for an infant uh, classroom, then you have to close. Like you cannot operate and just be like, well, I'll just bop back and forth between these rooms. So I've talked to childcare directors who say they fill in, they substitute teach, but this is a whole new idea called Sunflower Childcare Substitutes. It's a new company operated just over a year, serves 45 daycare centers in Northeast Ohio. And basically if you need a sub, you can call this company, whether you know it's going to be in the future or you need it day of, and they will supply someone to you. And the Akron YMCA is is one of the child care providers that uses them. You've heard from many people in response to the stories that you've been coordinating on this topic. Have you heard from any parents that did show up at daycare and, and get told, hey, sorry, you can't drop your kid off today. We're closing. And if so, what did they do? No, I haven't heard from those parents. So if anyone's listening, that's happened to them, please love to hear your story. And it wouldn't be like the whole child care center. It would be like one room. So the toddler class that day wouldn't be able to serve. I, I don't know what you do. That's it, It's a crisis, right? That's when you're like scrambling to find anything or you just take a day off because you don't have a child care option. And that's why Childcare is such an important factor to the economy because if we don't have reliable childcare, then we can't have reliable workers. And that's why I see this as everybody's problem, not just the parents. It sounds like a good solution that will help take care of a lot of parents. Stories on Cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council has been weighing the idea of improving Cleveland's parking meters to make them payable by credit card. So what a shock. But they've also been considering lengthening the hours deeper into the night and making people pay on weekends. Layla, yesterday was their last big meeting before their summer recess. Did they move that legislation? Are modern meters coming and will we have to pay late into the night? Well, 
yes, a no, maybe. <laughs> there you go. Those are the answers. Uh, council passed this legislation that authorizes the installation of the long-awaited smart parking meters. Obviously, we don't carry around sacks of quarters, so this is going to make things much, much easier for people headed downtown. But they pumped the brakes on, on the part of this proposal that would let the administration expand the hours of meter enforcement and to increase the parking fees. They want to chew on that one a little longer to determine if that's in the best interest of residents and downtown. The council approval of this last night lets Mayor Justin Bibb strike agreements with Flowbird and Park Mobile LLC to supply 700 new parking meters and provide a mobile payment platform that'll let drivers pay using a credit card through an app or or directly at the meter by scanning a QR code. You could still pay cash if you needed to at the meter. The cost to buy and install these meters is ex- expected to be around $5 million, plus extra fees to process credit card transactions and connect the meters to the internet, pay for enforcement, things like that. They're expecting these to be installed within six months of the contract being signed, but you know, supply chain issues. They might get in the way of that timeline. Bib wants to make other changes, though, like you said, to the parking policies, including variable parking rates based on demand, new paid parking spaces in areas of the city that haven't had paid on street parking before, and longer enforcement hours into the evenings and weekends, as late as 10 p.m. in some cases. He he also wants the Board of Control to assume the power to set rates but currently council gets to do that. And council president Blaine Griffin was concerned yesterday about some aspects of this new plan. Specifically, he was a a little rankled by the idea of raising the daily flat rate for special event parking at the municipal lot. It's currently 30 bucks uh, and Bib would like to raise it to as much as 70. So Blaine Griffin said he was also concerned about lengthening the enforcement hours. So they're going to just kind of mull this over and revisit it, maybe even by their next summer council meeting in July. I've been waiting for this because I lived through it 20 years ago when the Campbell, Jane Campbell administration tried to lengthen the hours and the city council led by Frank Jackson stopped it. They, they just, they thought it might harm business. They thought it mm-hmm. was putting the onus on residents that have to pay more money. And I, I was wondering, would the debate come back or are all those concerns gone and in Courtney's story, it's clear those concerns remain. This, you all know, you can drive to any suburban restaurant, park for free and eat. That's what you're competing against. And if you extend those hours into the night, do you discourage people? Don't know the answer, but clearly they're having that question. One thing I, I think that was pushed along, though, or, or at least it was stated, is that they could not add any new paid parking space on the street in Cleveland unless the the council person representing the ward where it is approves. No. I, I, I Was that in our story? I'm sorry I missed that yeah. detail. Really? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. so so what's your, what's your read on that? Is that good policy? Well, it tells me the council is worried about resident blowback by by putting making this more difficult to park. And business districts that don't have parking meters may resent having sudden parking meters because people can go elsewhere. It, it, it's a great issue. I, you could see Justin Bibb looking at parking lots charging 50 and $70 for big sports games. And Cleveland's not getting any of the money because at that time of the night, Parking is free on the street. He wants to tap into that, get the city share, 
But council is looking out for the residents and saying this may not be the best way to go. My feeling about downtown is that this is not this would not increasing parking rates and going deeper in enforcement into the the hours of the night would not affect downtown businesses. I really don't. I think if you're going downtown to have a meal or to you know enjoy the evening, you're going there for the environment of downtown. Being in the suburbs is nothing like it. So and and if if the antiquated quarter pay you know pay meters um haven't deterred downtown or you know people from going downtown i just i think this this new technology is uh is a step above that and people are not going to mind being charged past 6 p.m we'll have to see what the council Can decides i, I just ahead. say so i'm going to detroit on friday um and crossing my fingers that i could find street parking, which I know is hilarious because I'm going to Taylor Swift and there's a baseball game at the same time. But I have already downloaded the Detroit parking app, the city's app. They charge till 10 p.m. And I can imagine if they have flexible pricing, what it's going to be like. But um, I mean, we've said it before. We're really far behind here. But I agree with Layla. I don't think it's going to stop people from going downtown. for when, when I saw Bruce Springsteen in Detroit, we they have a great system up there where you can get pretty much any garage ahead of time. There's apps that get you your space ahead of time, so you don't even have to think about it. It's not the same in Cleveland. It's much more <laughs> challenging to figure it out, even on the commercial side. So, Laura, you have a newspaper box that is now sitting at your house somewhere. <laughs> Will you bid for a parking meter if the city decides to... <laughs> sell them off after they replace them <laughs> no no i'm not trying to create like an old-fashioned streetscape in my yard although <laughs> currently they're building a barn in my backyard so <laughs> ask me later <laughs> all right you're listening to today in ohio what kind of tactics does a flats bar owner say his landlord is using to drive him away from his location lisa this is an interesting slice of life story from cleveland yeah, it sounds like a strong arm tactics to me anyway, but let's discuss. James Cleveland, who's the owner of Frozen Daiquiri Bar and Restaurant on Old River Road, which opened last July, says his new landlord, GBX Group, is trying to evict him because it's not part of their plans to redevelop the Flats East Bank. So GBX bought a row of buildings that included the Frozen Daiquiri Bar back in December. And, um, you know, uh, Cleveland says his lease goes through 2026. But GBX says, well, the lease with the former landlord is month to month and it wasn't properly authorized. They, back in uh, March, GBX filed a temporary restraining order against the frozen daiquiri bar, alleging that it was a nuisance business that was later withdrawn but then they sent letters in march like on the 6th and the 7th of march demanding that the patio be removed because the prior permission for that patio is now irrelevant so um cleveland said, says they've started intensifying he said they started asking him to vacate his lease back in january they escalated to demanding that he leave and then taking legal action and um then they filed in may for eviction claiming that uh, Cleveland had late rent payments and unpaid utility bills. And Cleveland, through his attorney, Andrew Yarger, says that's completely false. Yeah, it does. It does sound like strong arm tactics. And I feel bad for the small business owner who's trying to make a go of it. It's still a fledgling business. This can't be easy. Uh, I did the, one, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, and business has been good. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, is because of the patio. But they also, I guess GBX tried to claim that a couple of crimes occurred at the bar, although Cleveland said the one shooting that he talked about wasn't even at his bar, even though they tried to say that it was. Now, moving, picking up, moving, setting up again will be very expensive. So you can see why he's fighting to stay through his lease. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Strawberries are an early summer crop, and when early summer comes with an extended period of no rain following some frosts, as it has this summer, what does it mean for people looking for locally grown berries? It's one of a series of weather stories we're doing in this long-range period with no rain. Absolutely. And I went berry picking on Saturday. It was the first day Often Campa Farm in Vermilion was open and they were only open for two days before they shut down again because there just aren't a lot of ripe berries right now. Remember that freeze that we had, that Lake Spring freeze that really was not that long ago? I think it was May 17th. Well, it froze a lot of the berries that were ripening and those ones are done. You can't I mean they never ripened they're not edible uh so that was really tough and now with the drought i mean we're going on day 16 i believe they really need water apparently berries in the, the final ripening stage really need a lot of, of water and so if you don't have an irrigation system on your farm you're going to be out of luck so a lot of these farms have berry hotlines i would really encourage you to, to call them or check out their facebook pages because it is not a normal berry picking season in Northeast Ohio. Last year, I think I was out there for like 20 minutes and we had five like quart buckets. And this time I think we like wandered around for quite a while and ended up with some pints. So much, much more difficult this year. Yeah, I actually think today is day 17 and there's still okay. no rain in the forecast for most of this week uh, or all of this week. What, uh, what other crops seem like they might be in trouble? So I didn't realize this, but sweet corn uh, is a problem. And part, part of this is because it has to be wet to germinate. So obviously, if you like your corn, <laughs> which I do in Northeast Ohio, you want it all season long, right? You want to see the first stuff you can get in July and then eat it through October. But if these these seeds are not germinating, they're not they're not wet, they're not germinating, they're not going to start growing. So you might end up with a harvest everything at the same time, which these farms are worried about because you need that water. So um, this is, and, and I guess you got to go deep, deeper uh, to plant uh, if if you're planting corn when it's dry. So I think these are two of the favorites in Northeast Ohio, and they are going to be affected by this beautiful weather that we're having. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about Cleveland a little bit more. Uh, Layla, there is an initiative being put on, trying to be put on the ballot to allow participatory budgeting. We talked about it last week, where a percentage of the city's budget would be placed into the hands of the people. Cleveland's finance director spoke up about this, is not crazy about the idea. Yeah. You know, well, first of all, it seems city council might have really put the city in a pickle by rejecting out of hand the proposal to pilot participatory budgeting in Cleveland because for a paltry $500,000 of American Rescue Plan Act money, they could have satisfied a movement of folks who want to give residents greater power in deciding how city money is spent in their communities. But council got kind of on their high horse about it and said, the people elect us to decide what's best for their communities. And now the people might just elect to force the city into participatory budgeting with this proposed city charter amendment that would give them 2% of the city's general fund to budget to the community's wishes. And that could amount to $14 million a year. 
And that has city officials really sweating right now. Finance chief Ahmed Abanama told Courtney Astolfi that if voters agree to this, it could significantly impair the city's ability to provide some basic services. I mean, to put it in perspective, the entire Department of Public Health's 2023 budget amounts to $14 million. The whole building and housing department's budget is $14.4 million. And $14 million is more than seven times the Department of Aging's expected spending. So, you know, other cities that have brought into participatory budget, you know, that bought into participatory budgeting have done it at a much, much lower threshold than 2% of the city's overall budget. Most give it about a million dollars. That's what they do in Philadelphia, Sacramento. New York City gives $30 million to participatory budgeting. But imagine what their general fund is. They've got billions there. So Abadama says that they this would be extremely challenging for Cleveland, which this year has finally achieved a balanced, bu- a balanced budget without dipping into reserves. Employee costs, which make up the vast share of the general fund, have increased 120 percent since 2001, but revenues have not kept pace. So I don't know. It seems like spin here. If if you put that money into the hands of residents and they did what they've done in other cities where they put it in the sidewalks or roads or playgrounds or recreation, the city could adjust the rest of its budget accordingly. It's just these folks would say, we want the money to go to these streets or these sidewalks or these playgrounds. The, the, the city spends money on all this stuff anyway. All you're doing is having citizens help direct some of it. I, I, I don't know that this would be as crippling as they're saying. Comparing it to the health department budget, is a little unfair. This, the city has, what is it up to? Three quarters of a, a billion dollars, uh, excluding the enterprise funds? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, they, they have a lot of money in the budget. They spend it on a lot of things that are probably things that, that people would want to focus this money on. So there's a way to merge the interests. I'm not sure it's the disaster and catastrophe they want no, but people to believe. but you see how, how many, how much time goes into budget hearings and, and just kind of pouring over every dollar in the city's budget, deciding where it should go. It is kind of a big question mark if you've got, you know, $14 million that's set well, aside for no. for the public to decide what to do with it. And, and you don't know what what plans they might come up with and what one will win the vote. And I mean, I think that that kind of does leave you in a uh, tough spot. It's, it's timing. Set a deadline. So when whenever the city begins its budgeting process, have these folks complete their work before then? It, it, you know, if say say the city in earnest because they have to pass the budget by what the end of February or first first mm-hmm, April, mm-hmm. Um, th- 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 they start in earnest on September first. So you would tell these folks, okay, you start June first, and you have to have your plan in by August thirty first, and then the city would incorporate their wishes into their their own planning. It doesn't seem that hard. And if the goal is to get people involved in their city and raise voter turnout, which is abysmal in Cleveland, this doesn't seem unworkable, as unworkable as the council and the finance chief were trying to say. Interesting story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. St. Ignatius High School is well-known in Cleveland, and it's looking to build a big expansion. But first, it has to appease the Cleveland Landmarks Commission. Lisa, what's the rub? 
Well, because St. Ignatius High School is 100 years old as, and is a Cleveland landmark, they kind of have to hew to certain uh, aesthetics, as it were. So they changed their plans to upgrade its campus after input from the Cleveland Landmarks Commission and the Ohio City Design Review Committee. Uh, Richard Klingshurn, the former CFO of St. Ignatius and currently a consultant, says there were concerns over the use of white faux limestone on a campus that is full of red brick buildings. So they're going to make that red brick. And they're also tweaking the tower element of the new building to complement the main building's clock tower. So the plans are to demolish the on-campus power plant that's circa 1946 and the 1920s era Carroll Gym to make room for 55,000 square foot expansion with more classrooms and an athletic center. It would connect to the main school building with a glass sky bridge on the second and third floors and would create an interior quad area. And they say they're not doing it to enlarge their enrollment, but they want more room for their current student body of 1,400 students. It's a $30 million estimated cost that will be all raised by donors, and they hope to start demolishing in early 2024. I don't know. It feels like there's there's a different standard being used here with St. Ignatius than there is with the Cleveland Clinic, which keeps putting up featureless, ugly buildings that the Landmarks Commission is fine with, but St. Ignatius is having to have a rigor, which is good. It's it, It'll mm-hmm. keep it looking uniform, but it would be nice if they had done the same thing on the east side of town. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more. Sarah Leoy became a household name a little over a decade ago as the judge presiding over the notorious corruption case of Jimmy DeMora, the former Cuyahoga County Commissioner. That trial was like herding cats, if you'll recall. Laura, she just got a promotion. What is it? Yeah, she's now chief judge. So she's going to oversee the administration of federal courts in Northern Ohio. That's Cleveland, Toledo, and Youngstown. She will also continue to hear cases on her own docket and oversee those 300 employees in the district. So she'll handle all the administrative functions. That sounds like a lot of work. She takes over for Patricia Gogan, the first ever woman to be named chief judge in the district, and she was judge for the last six years. So Leoy says she's proud and honored to serve in this role. She's 62. She was nominated to the federal bench in 2007 and was a Stark County Common Pleas judge for a decade before that. She really did become part of the atmosphere during that trial. I mean, her name was in our platforms over and over again. And it was one of the more challenging jobs to to oversee that trial and all the emotions and all the nonsense that went with it. And she navigated it pretty well. I mean, she took some criticism and there were appeals, but she seems to have that even-handed personality you need to manage a job like this. Yeah, it does seem like a huge job, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. That's it for the Tuesday episode of Today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast.